Lord, we, we just, we need you. We need you in this moment. We need you every moment. There are so many people in this room with different things that they are going through, different ways that they are suffering, different needs that they have. Lord, I pray for this, this moment, that this few minutes we have together in your word would be a great and immense comfort as we consider Jesus Christ. Help us as we leave this place today to just be lost in your glory. To just be so overwhelmed with awe that we would have no choice and no other desire but to live for you. Please remove all of the distractions from our minds that are vying for our affections and our thoughts. Remove it far from us that we may see you through your word. Help us, we pray. Amen. Colossians 1 will be our text today if you haven't turned there already. The reason that I wanted to preach from Colossians 1 is very simple because I need to see Christ. And if I need to see Christ, you do too. And Colossians 1 is a great passage. You know, one of the strange things, and I guess it shouldn't be very surprising things that happen when you go through extremely painful trials, is you will notice that the things of this world that once were so important to you, that once consumed your mind, they start to get fuzzy. They start to blur. They start to fade away. Because when you know Christ, those trials often take your eyes off of the things of this earth and they make you long to be with Jesus. They make you see the things of God, see the things of heaven as so much more desirable than the things of this world. It's been my experience as well. You know, next week it will be nine months since Grayson passed away. Nine months since God called him home. And I was especially reminded of the grief of this this past week when Victoria kindly reminded me that, you know, we have an appointment coming up. We set long ago for Grayson. We have to cancel it. And there was an element of finality to that when I called the doctor's office saying, we don't need the appointment anymore. He's not here. And it was deeply sorrowful because in a way your, your mind was holding on to that appointment, holding on to just this idea that he's still here, but he's not. You know, Victoria and I were remarking, I miss, I miss the, the constant calls from doctor's offices. I miss setting the schedules. I miss the seemingly frustrating calls from Walgreens that his prescription is ready. I miss saying his birth date when they ask for verification of who your child is. I don't get to do that anymore. I just miss him. I just miss his smile and his laugh. And it's in the grief, in the distress, that you're reminded that this world is so ravaged by sin that it produces death, and death brings pain. And you're reminded of how quickly the things of this life fade away. You're reminded that those who place their lasting hope in the things of this world will be disappointed 
The only ones who will not be disappointed are those who place their hope in Jesus Christ. The perspective that Paul speaks of in Philippians, to live as Christ and to die as gain, for those who go through trials, that death that is gain seems so much more desirable. This perspective makes you long to be with him. It makes you say, as Revelation says, come Lord Jesus, there's nothing else to wait for. There's nothing else I'd rather have. There's nowhere else I would rather be. You want to see Jesus now, and you want others to know him also. This matter is very urgent. This is the reason why a couple weeks ago when we went away for summer camp, that I chose the series Christ is Worthy, because you have to see Christ. It's the reason why I chose Colossians 1 this morning. What other message do I have for you? What other message does anyone have? I want you to see Christ today. I want you to not just see him, but know him. Because if you know Christ, you will love him. And if you love him, you will live for him. How you respond to this Christ, revealed in Colossians 1 and in many other places, determines your eternal state. He is either your Savior and Lord, or you reject him in unbelief and you want nothing to do with him. But it is my prayer this morning, through the words of the living God in Colossians 1, that you would be in awe of this Christ so that you will gladly live for him. So let's read this. Colossians 1. It's already been read once before. I mean, actually, back up to verse 12. You know what? It's worth noting before we start reading that, that we should be reminded that every text has a context. There's a reason why the, the book or the letter of Colossians was written to this church one of the reasons why this letter was written to this people was because there was a heresy going around, a heresy that was disturbing the faith of some, a heresy that was ensnaring and enslaving. It was called Gnosticism. It was this idea that God is spiritual, God is good. Therefore, all matter, things of this physical realm, are evil. You might say, well, what is, how does that threaten the gospel? Because it threatens the, the doctrine of Jesus Christ. This heresy said Jesus, because he was man, could not be God. It's impossible because material things are evil. There cannot be a coexistence of God with man. And you can see, of course if you've been in the faith for any amount of time, how that destroys the gospel. If Jesus Christ is not fully God and fully man, we are still in our sins. So keep that in mind. That is the context. They are addressing, Paul is addressing this heresy. It's not the only thing he's writing about, but it is the, the main thing. So look at verse 12 as we read through the rest of this passage. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I read that because he's saying, we give thanks to the Father. Here's why we give thanks. Verse 13. For he, God the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is, the, he is also head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him 
and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. This is the passage we are going to walk through today. Let's start with verse 13 and 14. This is where we get our first point. Jesus is the only hope for rescue, redemption, and forgiveness. We see this in verses 13 and 14. It says this, For he rescued, that's God the Father, rescuing us. We would do well to consider the nature of this rescue if you want to worship God. What did he rescue you from? For he rescued us from the domain of darkness. This domain of darkness is the domain, is the kingdom that you and I were put in from birth. Ever since the fall in the garden, all of mankind is born into this domain and stranglehold of darkness. Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. In the fall, you die because of sin. This is the domain of darkness. Romans 3.23 clarifies that all have sinned, both Jew and Gentile, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, this is what you've earned for your sin. The wages of sin is death. Ephesians 2 reveals that all are born dead. They are born with a father, yes, but their father is not God. They are of their father, the devil, and under the sway of his power. They were by nature children of wrath. What is this domain of darkness? It is the kingdom of this world. Those in this kingdom will receive just eternal death. You could probably best call this domain the domain or the kingdom of sin and death. Hopefully you can see why this would be a domain that you would need rescue from. But since you were born dead and no one can come to the Father except through him, you have no hope of rescuing yourself from this domain of darkness. You are required to be perfect and holy, but you lack the ability to do so. This is the dilemma. When Adam and Eve sinned, you remember this probably at the end of chapter 3, it says that God stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every which way to what? To guard the way to the tree of life, showing this, you're shut out, there's no way back. We could have all justly and righteously been left in the domain of darkness because of sin. But this is where our Savior comes in. You may say, Josh, why are you spending so much time on this? We've heard this before. You may have heard this before, but often we forget what we were rescued from. You know what happens when you forget what you were rescued from? Your heart starts to swell up with pride, and it also grows cold with ingratitude. When you forget that you were of the domain of darkness, Chained, imprisoned, no way out. But God rescues you from it. If you forget that, you will find yourself growing in pride and ingratitude. But let's look, let's continue. We were rescued from the domain of darkness. What does this rescue involve? It not only uh, involves taking us out of the domain of darkness. That would be one thing that would be glorious, right? Just to be taken out of this kingdom of sin and death. But then you are placed in a new kingdom. You are transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son. This is the son whom God the father testified with a voice from heaven. This 
is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You see, God rescues us, yes, that involves plucking us from the domain of darkness and transferring us into the kingdom of his son in whom he is well pleased. You know what that means? If you're in that kingdom, he's pleased with you. Through your works? No way. Through Christ. How is this rescue possible? How can he take us from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of his son? Verse 14 informs us, this son that he spoke of, this kingdom, who be- the kingdom that belongs to his son, verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He can, tr- he can rescue us. He can transfer us through his son. The rescue that God had planned from eternity past is, is accomplished through Jesus Christ. Redemption, which kind of has this idea of a ransom payment that is made, is made by Jesus Christ. This is why Revelation 5.9 says this, and this was our theme verse for the week of camp. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. What kind of king is slain this kind of king who through his blood purchased from every tribe and tongue and people and nation men? This is Jesus Christ in whom you have redemption. And it is on the cross that we see this payment made. The redemption price is paid on the cross, on the cross you see this beautiful mingling of God's holiness and his justice that requires payment for sin. But you also see that mingled with the grace and kindness and mercy of God. Because in God accepting his son's sacrifice, he takes the perfect righteousness of his son and transfers it to those who believe. But not only this, he pours out an eternal weight of wrath upon his son on the cross. It is in this way and only this way that redemption and forgiveness can occur. You try to achieve redemption and forgiveness any other way, you will not have it. This is the very reason 1 John 1.9 says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous or just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. That means he's made a promise that he will keep, but he's also just. And the reason he is just is because he poured out his wrath upon Christ for you and transferred his son's righteousness to you. Believer, maybe it's been some time since you've been saved and maybe... You forget how sweet it is to say you are forgiven. Maybe it's been a while since you felt the weight of that guilt, or maybe some of you think that now. In Christ, through his sacrifice, you are forgiven. Whatever you have done, whatever way that you have offended the Most High God, God the Father pours out the wrath meant for you on his son. You are forgiven. Psalm 103, 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. This is your reality in Christ. So who is the us being referred to here in verse 14? For he rescued us. Well, who's that? Verse 4 of Colossians 1 says, since we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the us are those of faith. That's it. Period. End of statement. If you place your faith in Christ, you have been transferred from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We're only two verses in. This is why this passage is so awesome, because it just keeps overflowing. 
That would be enough. We could leave this place worshiping Christ, saying, praise you for transferring us from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your son. But that's not all. Verse 15, he, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. Do you want to see God? Do you want to know God? Look no further than Jesus Christ. John 1.18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he, Jesus Christ, has explained him. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3 says this, In these last days... He has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus Christ, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. You see, mankind, it says in Genesis, was made in the image of God, right? We were made in the image. We reflect God in plenty of ways. The fall has marred that in some ways, yes, but we still are in the image of God. This is a totally different statement. Jesus is the image of God. Do you see how Paul is dismantling this Gnostic heresy. He is saying, if you deny Jesus Christ, you cannot see God. You just can't. If he's the image of the invisible God and you reject that image, good luck trying to see God. He's not only the image of God. Look at the second half of verse 15. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now sometimes this phrase, the firstborn of all creation, can be seen as problematic to some because many false religions use this to say, see, Jesus Christ was created. He's the first one created, sure. He's the best of the creation, sure, but he is still created. Is that what this means? Because if that is what this means, we may as well all go home. If Jesus Christ is created, there is no salvation. If Jesus Christ is not fully God, we have no hope. But can we prove that? Because maybe upon first reading it sounds like that. Well, let's consider. Let's acknowledge that the, ter the word firstborn can actually be used to describe chronological order. Luke 2, 7 says this, And she gave birth, Mary, to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths. In that context, firstborn means the first of her womb. Is that the only possibility here? No. We also see in the scriptures that this word firstborn does not have to speak of chronological order in time, but can actually refer to rank or significance or position. You say, well, how do we know this? Well, the Lord, when speaking to Pharaoh in Egypt, says he calls the nation of Israel his firstborn. Was Israel the firstborn nation as far as the first nation ever created? No. This was a term meant to show Pharaoh, I have set them apart. I have given them an esteemed position in my eyes. They are my firstborn. Psalm 89, 27 also says this, speaking of, of the Messiah to come, I also shall make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You cannot make someone your firstborn unless you're speaking of rank, position, or significance. This is the same thing that happens when we read of Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn chronologically, given the right, the birthright, to the inheritance. But in giving that up, he gave away the blessing of being 
the firstborn. You might say, well, why is this necessary to establish? We have to establish this. We have to. Because you're faced with two choices when you come across this text. Either Jesus is the firstborn of all creation in the sense that he's the first created being, or he is the firstborn of all creation in terms of his rank, significance, position, and inheritance. And everything is on the line. This is why you must consider when making an interpretive decision, you must consider the immediate context and the whole counsel of God's word. And I will propose this to you, that both the immediate context and the whole counsel of God's word reject the idea that firstborn of all creation means that Jesus was created. We see this, first of all, in the purpose of the book. If you read Colossians, Paul is fighting the Gnostics. How would this advance his argument to agree with them? That doesn't make any sense. Oh, yes, you say Jesus can't be God. I say Jesus was created. How would that serve to advance the argument? So we have a logical argument there. But more powerful than that, the scriptures bear witness against this. Verse 14, we've already seen redemption and forgiveness of sins come through Jesus Christ. No one but God alone can forgive sins. Verse 16, which we're about to get to, by him all things were created. Who can create things but God? Colossians 2.9 says this, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That can't happen if he's created. And so many more. The rest of the scriptures also testify to this. John 1.1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was God. Was with God and the word was God. I don't know how to make that any clearer. He cannot be the creator. He cannot be the perfect mediator if he is created. And if Jesus is not God then it would be false worship to give him the name above all names. If Jesus is not God, he cannot be king of kings and lord of lords. This phrase, firstborn, must, by the immediate context in the whole counsel of God's word, mean firstborn in terms of rank, preeminence, significance. But you might be asking, well, why? Why is he given this title of firstborn? Paul anticipates that. Look with me at verse 16 and 17. He's going to give four reasons why. Firstly, Jesus is the creator. For by him, this is verse 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him. That is an amazing statement. So many times people on the outside of Christianity perceive this great warfare that happens between God and Satan as if they are equal foes. They are not. Jesus created Satan. He will gladly crush him. There is no battle here. Any actual seeming warfare is just temporary. There's no chance Satan will win because he's been created by God. John 1.3 says, all things came into being through him. Hebrews says, God makes all things through Jesus. Only God has the power to create. You say, why is he given the title of being preeminent, significant, above all creation? It's because he created everything. Secondly, that's not the only reason. Jesus was the reason and is the reason for all of the creation. Hopefully you saw that. All things have been created through him. Yes, he's the source of it and for him. You say, 
Wait, he created all things for himself? Yeah. He created everything for his good pleasure and to bring himself glory. This means that the purpose and design of everything that was created is for Jesus. The world, contrary to popular belief, does not revolve around us. But rather, Jesus Christ. Do you want to know why the things of this world never satisfy your deepest longings? It's because you were created for Jesus. Do you want to know why sin never satisfies? It's because you were created for sin. You might say, well, isn't that selfish of Jesus to create everything for his own good pleasure and his own glory? Firstly, first response, Romans 9.20, will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? First argument is, we have no voice against God, the creator. We have no argument. How can we say, why did you make us this way? But secondly, Jesus is worthy of all honor, blessing, and glory according to Revelation 5. If he is worthy of it, of course, the creation design then is good and right because he is worthy of all praise and adoration. I would actually propose this. It would be wrong of Jesus not to demand worship of you because he's worthy of it. So, friend, if all things, including yourself, were created through Christ and for Christ, are you living this way? And you know in your heart when you're not. When you're not living this way, you start to see things don't satisfy you. Shocker, you were created for Christ. When you deviate from that, bad things happen. And those are the ones in the domain of darkness. They are apart from Christ completely. This is why they need rescuing. This is why we proclaim truth. But it is not only, uh, Jesus is not declared the firstborn of all creation just because he's the creator, just because he's the reason for all the creation, but he also existed before the creation. Look at verse 17. He is before all things. He comes before them. John 1.1, 1, 1, we read this earlier. In the beginning was the word. In the very beginning was Christ. He always has been and always will be. This once again testifies to the deity of Jesus Christ. He is before all things. He created all things. Not only that, though. Look at the end of verse 17. And in him all things hold together. He is the sustainer of creation. Jesus not only existed before creation, he sustains it. In him all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says he upholds all things by the word of his power. Should Christ somehow disappear, which is impossible, but should he? Everything would disappear. He holds everything together that means he holds you together at this very moment in time. Do you want to know why your heart is working this morning? Why it is beating? It's not because of your health or your diet or your willpower or your strength. It's because Jesus upholds you. And that is a sobering thought when you think there are some people in this room that do not know Christ. Every moment that Jesus holds you up is a moment of long-suffering and patience that you would turn before it is everlastingly too late. And for those of you in this room that know Jesus Christ, you have been upheld to produce good works, to share the name of Christ with others, to grow in conformity to his likeness. How could Jesus be created if he is the creator, the reason for which everything was created, if he existed ahead of time and he sustains everything, that's impossible for him to be created and have that title. Are you getting the picture here 
Jesus Christ is preeminent. He is exalted. He is incomparable because he is above all. We still got three more verses. Verse 18. Jesus is the head and source of the church. This is point number four. I know I got lost in my point somewhere, but this is point number four. Verse 18 says this. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I want to zoom in on that first phrase. He is also the head of the body, the church. Should not be surprising why Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He is the head of the church because he's the source of the church. There is no church. And I'm not talking, when we talk about church here, we're not talking about a physical building we're talking about the, the holy church of God that has been set apart. Those who know Christ, his elect. There is no church, there is no salvation except through Jesus Christ. So he's the head and the source. He's just taking his rightful place as the head because without him, we have no church. And this word beginning, he is the beginning, conveys the idea even of having this highest position, yes, he's the source. He is the source of the beginning of the church, yes, but he's also preeminent and exalted. You see, Jesus Christ, if he's the head of the church, that means he is the one who gives us our marching orders. He is our master, our savior, our king. What he says, we do. When we do not do that, we repent. And that cycle over and over again until you die and are with him. You think any command of God is optional? You don't see him as Lord. You cannot have Christ as your Savior and not your Lord. There is no chance of that. So many people in America want to be saved from hell, but they don't want to submit their life to him. They have not seen Jesus. This is why it continues. He's not only the head and the source of the church. He's the beginning, yes, but he's also the firstborn from the dead. There's that word again. Is he the first one to be chronologically raised from the dead? Well, we would say no, because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, right? This is not talking about chronological order. It's talking about superiority. He is the firstborn from the dead. And this, yes, of course it means he is the greatest ever to rise from the dead. Yes, but it also means he is exalted over death. Why is he given this title of firstborn preeminent one from the dead? It's because by his death and his resurrection, he has defeated death. Where do we know that in the scripture? So many places. 2 Timothy 1.10 says that when Jesus came, he abolished death and he brought life. Acts 2.24 says, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Why? Since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Who among the created world can say that? It's impossible. Only Christ can be raised. It's impossible for death to hold him because he's not created. He is God and man. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, therefore, since the children, you and I, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus Christ, likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. He crushed death, brought Life. He crushes Satan and frees you from his grasp. But not only that. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says this. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. It goes on in verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Jesus, yes, is the firstborn from the dead. 
But he, being the firstborn from the dead, has application for you. Because he rose from the dead, so will you. There is no more sting of death. There is no more fear of death. Because those who have died already, if they were in Christ, they live right now. And when you die, you will live. You have no fear because the one you serve has conquered it. So yes, he's the firstborn from the dead. Absolutely. So what's the conclusion? The natural conclusion is the end of verse 18. There's a so there. All of these things that have been said, why? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. You see, when you see Jesus as the means of redemption and forgiveness, which we talked about in verse 13 and 14, if you see him as the image of the invisible God, if you see him as the firstborn of all creation because he created everything, he's the reason for everything being created, and he sustains everything, if he is the head and the source of the church and the firstborn from the dead, since he has defeated death, he has done this to have first place. My friend, the question is not whether or not Christ is worthy of first place because he is, whether you like it or not. Your opinion on this matter changes nothing. But the question is this, do you see Christ as worthy of first place in everything? Do you see Christ as worthy of first place in your affections, the things you long for, the things you love, in your thoughts, in your actions, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, in your workplace? Is he worthy of first place in everything? The question is not, is he worthy? It's, do you see him as worthy? Because he is worthy of first place in everything and if you see Jesus as merely worthy in a few areas of your life, but not all of it, you have either been blinded by sin in your life, if you're a believer, or you have not seen him ever through faith. Because when you see Jesus Christ as worthy, it's all or nothing. In either of these cases, if you see him as worthy of some things but not all, repent in dust and ashes and beg God to open your eyes. And when you see him as worthy of first place in everything, because of everything that we've just talked about, you will be changed. You don't even have to try to change. You will be changed. And we're not done yet. Verse 19 for it was the Father's good pleasure. Key in on that word, those words, good pleasure. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of what? Look over at Colossians 2.9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. That is what verse 19 is getting at. Jesus is fully God. Why was it the Father's good pleasure for the fullness of deity to dwell on him? Why? Verse 20 tells us. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. You see, we spoke about this earlier. We spoke about the cross briefly earlier. But it is God the Father's good pleasure for the fullness of deity to dwell on Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ because he will reconcile all things through the cross. When you consider everything that we have just said about Jesus Christ, perfect image of the invisible God, firstborn in rank, He's the creator, sustainer, and reason for everything. He's the head and source of the church. He's the firstborn from the dead. When you consider all those things, and you consider the fact that this very Jesus went to the cross for you, 
That is amazing. You see, God doesn't need us. He doesn't owe us anything except for wrath. And yet, the King of kings and Lord of lords goes to hang on the cross for you. He went to the cross to die a criminal's death. Why did he do it? To purchase you by his blood. Remember I told you to key in on the words. It was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of God to dwell in him. You know what else the Bible says about the Father's good pleasure? Or his pleasure in general? Isaiah 53.10 says, The Father was pleased to crush Jesus Christ. The Father... The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. That is an astonishing statement. He was pleased to have the fullness of deity dwell in Christ, yes, but he was pleased to crush him. Why? To purchase you. If you've ever questioned God's love for you, you should not, believer, he crushed his son for you. And he didn't stay on the cross, of course. He rose victorious. You see, Christ's work on the cross that verse 20 speaks of, right? It says, he reconciles all things and makes peace through the blood of the cross. This cross was the central and most pivotal moment in all of history. All people before the cross... Every saint of old was looking forward to this day that payment for sins would be rendered and given. And we look back at the cross and rejoice. It's because of Christ's work on the cross that you, by faith, are rescued, redeemed, forgiven, and reconciled. This is why Paul said these two things. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What other boast do we have? We have no other boast. Without the cross, we are nothing. Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 2.2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's because on that cross, the payment is made. Your sins can be forgiven. You say, Josh, this is, all, this is nice and all, but where's the application? Here's your application today. Worship Jesus Christ. <laughs> Bow before him. Stand amazed at Jesus. Because all sin is rooted in a worship problem. All sin worships self instead of God. You want to know how to fight sin? Have a greater love. Have a greater affection. Have a greater worship. You must worship Christ. You try to fight your sin any other way, it's not going to work because your affections have not changed. Beg God that you would increase in your love for Christ. Consider the Savior every chance you get because when you are in awe of Christ and you worship him in your heart, the sin of this world is exposed as worthless and disgusting. You see right through the lie. You see the pleasures as fleeting because you're so content in Christ. If you don't know this king, if you haven't bowed the knee to the exalted, incomparable, preeminent Christ, it is not too late we don't preach a gospel of works. We preach a gospel of Christ crucified. That is the part where your sins are paid for. He rose from the dead to show he was victorious, that all who would believe would be saved. If you don't know Christ, bow the knee and believe that he has died for your sins, he's rose victorious, and he has given you a righteousness you did not earn. 
And if you do know him and you have seen Christ as worthy, then I want you to sing the next song we're about to sing, which is all I have is Christ. That's what we're going to end on today. All I have is Christ. When you see him, you can say amen to that. Should everything else be taken from you, but you still have Christ, it is enough. So let us shout our praise to the exalted, incomparable, preeminent Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we stand amazed at who you are and what you've done. We cannot fully grasp the weight of the love that you have for us. But I do pray, Lord, that Maybe we just get a glimpse. Maybe we just get a taste of that today. And that that would give us the strength and the motivation to run the race well. You have purchased salvation for us when we did not deserve it. You are the preeminent one. You are incomparable. You are exalted and yet... You descended to die for us. Please, Lord, help us to be greater worshipers of you. Help us to see through the lie of sin because we love you so much. Increase our love for you, Lord. Help us, we pray.